Hello, everyone, and welcome back to SALT Talks. My name is John Darcy. I'm the Managing Director of SALT, which is a global thought leadership forum and networking platform at the intersection of finance, technology, and public policy. SALT Talks are a digital interview series with leading investors, creators, and thinkers. And our goal on these SALT Talks is the same as our goal at our SALT conferences, which is to provide a window into the mind of subject matter experts, as well as provide a platform for what we think are big ideas that are shaping the future. And we're very excited today to bring you the latest uh, episode in our SALT Talks digital asset series uh, with Richard Byworth, who's the CEO of Diginex. Uh, Richard has over 20 plus years of experience spanning finance, startups, investments, and the fintech sectors. Uh, previously, he was a managing director at Nomura, a Japanese investment bank, and Richard was running derivative and equity-linked product sales for Asia-Pacific products globally. Uh, the youngest managing director in Nomura's history, Richard led the build-out of the number one franchise of convertible bonds in Asia from 2005. Richard has founded several companies and is an active investor, having started his first trading company in 1990. He's a board member of Bletchley Park Asset Management, Jersey, Diginex, and sits on the advisory board to PrivateMarket.io, which is a private equity fund marketplace. Richard is a Hong Kong regional ambassador for the Global Blockchain Business Council and has spoken extensively around the merits of blockchain for business and finance at the World Economic Forum, aka Davos, and the United Nations in Geneva. Hosting today's talk is Anthony Scaramucci, the founder and managing partner of Skybridge Capital, a global alternative investment firm. Anthony is also the chairman of SALT. And with that, I'll turn it over to you, Anthony, to begin the interview. John, John, thank you. And Richard, thanks for joining us on your evening in Singapore. We appreciate you being here. Hong Kong. Hong Kong. Okay, I'm sorry. In Hong Kong, the Hong um, the, the Singaporeans and the Hong Kongese don't like to be uh, confused. Okay, see, he's already starting. Byworth, see, he's already starting. Okay, don't worry, I'll be kicking him at the knees here shortly. But, Mister Byworth, you go from investment banking to crypto. So some of your colleagues think you're nuts. Obviously, many of my colleagues have always known that I am nuts, but yeah. uh, you don't seem nuts to me. So why did you go from investment banking? into crypto? Yeah, for me, um, banking was was clearly starting to get to a point where it was, it was becoming a difficult industry. So margins have been really compressed ever since 2008. We've seen a lot of balance sheet just been thrown at absolutely everything. And all the businesses that I was involved with from derivatives through to Delta One, futures and options, everything was getting compressed. And uh, it just wasn't that much fun anymore. Um, I started doing some uh, early stage investing and uh, I invested in a company called Diginex, which is obviously the company that I'm now the CEO of. Uh, back then, Diginex was a cryptocurrency mining company. I'd got interested in crypto because of the, the, the way that Yuval Harari in the book Sapiens had framed the sort of monetary belief system and, and kept referencing Bitcoin, which up until then, I'd always thought it was some internet scam. And uh, so I started to pay attention to look at, looking at it in some detail. And once I started to re really peel back the layers of what this asset was and the impact that it could have on the world, it became very clear to me that I wanted to be involved in it. Uh, I started by investing. And then, as I say, having invested in Diginex, uh, the founder of Diginex approached me and said, would I help him build 
what he envisaged as being the leading um, regulatory focused financial services firm in this space. And that's obviously what we've built uh, over the last three years. Um, so yeah, that's how I got here. So, so let's talk about DigiNex, um, the yeah. history, the mission, what the company does. Um, I apologize for uh, confusing you with Binance, which is based in Singapore. Sorry about that. Of course, Darcy <laughs> had to say that to me and hurt my feelings. But let's talk about DigiNex. Sure. So, like, DigiNex um, is a is a full digital asset ecosystem with with regulatory focus as its core uh, principle. So we've got a, an exchange at the center of that. Actually, the reason you probably think I'm in Singapore is because that exchange is based in Singapore. Um, due to COVID, I haven't actually managed to get over there yet. Um, but uh, the exchange Equos is at the beginning, at the middle of everything that we do. The exchange is a derivative platform. Um, it's focused on bringing much more credible derivatives to this space, building on what we've already seen in the perpetual swap space, and then expanding into options, structured products, and everything that we know goes with it from traditional finance. Um, we have our own segregated custodian, DigiVault. Uh, that's operated by an ex-team of Ministry of Defense out of the United Kingdom. Um, uh, we have our own asset manager. Um, different to your own, we are a fund of hedge funds. So we look at very alpha-centric strategies, looking at the very unique alpha that's available in this asset class with all the various different arbitrage aspects. And obviously we spoke about Grayscale earlier, um, that premium arbitrage, that discount arbitrage that we're now seeing, those are some of the strategies that sit inside the fund and the, obviously the unique alpha that, that crypto uh, offers. We have our own boutique investment bank, Equos Capital, and we also have our own trading platform access, uh, which plugs into two of the largest trading technology platforms in the world, FIS and Itivity. So that's the full ecosystem. Your, your uh, <clears throat> listing on the NASDAQ, which took place in October of last year, was quite important to the company. Tell us why it was so important to Diginex. So we're obviously focused on bringing trust to the industry, bringing governance to the industry. And I think a lot of people, certainly in this region, have had issues around the way that some of the companies in the space are governed. Um, you give a, a good example, there was a recent one of our competitors, um, the CEO was thrown in, uh, in into custody for a while and all the Bitcoin on the platform was trapped there. No one could get the Bitcoin off. And so if you're a hedge fund or an institutional manager trying to operate on these platforms, you know, you're getting governance risks highlighted all over the place. You know, for institutions, as you will know, reputational risk is everything. And if you're running reputational risk through KYC and AML risk that many of these platforms run, again, you are running reputational risk. And so what we did with, with the build of it was really focus on mitigating all of the reputational and governance risk. And the ultimate level of governance is being a NASDAQ listed company with that SEC approval and those governance frameworks that we're required to have. And so for us, it was really important. Uh, we were obviously the first uh, ecosystem to be listed on NASDAQ. We've now got Coinbase following in our footsteps. So it's, it's gonna be an interesting uh, ride for the next uh, year or two years as we see more and more companies come into the space. So we were talking before this started about 
hodling. We were talking about how uh, coins, Bitcoin in particular, are being taken off of exchanges and it looks like they're being put into cold storage. What are the implications of that for the space, your business? Is this positive? Is it negative? Uh, How do you think it's going to affect pricing going forward? Well, yeah, I mean, as I was saying to you, I think we're in what we we refer to as a supply side crisis. Um, We've obviously had the halving that happened in May last year. We're now moving into a paradigm where, as you say, you've got a lot of institutions. You just take Square, Tesla, MicroStrategy, um, and, uh, and, and they alone have taken something like you know, 45% of the annual production of Bitcoin post the halving and locked it into cold storage. Now, they're not alone. I mean, they're the early movers. Uh, we're starting to see, I mean, we had two new corporates this week that announced um, that they were starting to, to put Bitcoin on their balance sheet in smaller size. Um, but the point is that now every CFO, every finance department is having to at least explain to their board, why are we seeing this phenomenon? What is this asset that is Bitcoin and why are companies putting it on their balance sheet to preserve the, the, you know, their value of their corporate treasury? So that's obviously a much broader question. But yeah, I think what we're going to see in terms of prices is massive expansion. I mean, I probably have a, a, a pretty bullish view for this year. Uh, um, I'm not sure how bullish you are, Anthony, but I'm at 175,000 is the likely peak that we're going to see this year. All right. Well, when are we when are we inviting Byworth back on the next salt talk, Darcy? Is it next week? All right. Make sure you get him back. Hey, on when it hits one hundred and seventy five thousand, yeah, so hopefully I mean, that's within a year. All right. Well, yeah, listen, you know, I, here's the problem with me. Okay, I actually believe that, but when I'm on television like CNBC, someone asks me because we have people that are not paying as close attention to this as you and I are, Richard. I said a hundred thousand. And I was I was met with the shock and awe of the reflexive response of people that are not paying close enough attention to what's going on. So, and then I got ridiculed on Twitter. People yeah. said I was too bearish. You're too there, bearish. There was a dichotomy of reactions. There were yeah. there were mainstream people saying, "Oh, Anthony's now bought into this cult, and he thinks it's going to go to a hundred thousand by the end of the year." And then all the uh, the hodlers on Twitter were like, "Why are you so bearish?" But but I think you just you just brilliantly explained. Why, with reasonably high likelihood, and again, I want to put all those caveats out there for people listening to us, Bitcoin is a volatile asset. It does, you can lose money. We're not suggesting take anything to the bank. Richard is not suggesting that, nor am I, but we're just looking at supply demand fundamentals and the brilliant exposition of what Richard just said about those supply demand fundamentals as why this asset class is moving higher, okay? It may or may not happen. We both know that, but it's in our best guess that that's the direction that it's going in. Is that fair to say it that way, Richard? I hope hope you... Yeah, I mean, I think the, that that's the supply side issue. And the question always becomes, why are they buying it? And then you have to look properly at the macro backdrop. And, you know, again, this is, this is your world. You, you know, you, you're in... A far better position to explain than myself, but you know, if I'll, I'll attempt, effectively, what you're looking at with the Federal Reserve, Federal Reserve are trying to create inflation. We're going into a period where massive amount of jobs are going to get lost. 
They've already been lost due to the pandemic, but technology and the deflation that that effectively brings, you just look at automated vehicles as an example. Um, you think about truck drivers across the United States. How many people are going to be put out of work by automated vehicles uh, or um, with the advancement that companies like Tesla and Google are making? This is extremely deflationary. Now, the Fed can't have deflation. I mean, they've got a balance sheet of debt, which is what, 28 trillion today? I mean, they are drowning in debt. If we go into a deflationary cycle, they are not going to be able to handle it. They're never going to be able to pay off that debt. And certainly they're not going to get the tax receipts to even be able to service that debt. Okay, so, so let, me, let, me stop you for one, let me stop you for one second, because I really yeah. want to explain this to people that are not as sophisticated as, frankly, you are, Richard. They can't handle it because they can't pay the debt back with dollars that are worth more than the dollars that they borrowed. And so when you have a period of deflation, the value of the currency is actually going up relative to assets. And so therefore, they're in a debt trap. Uh, this is what's got central bankers scared out of their minds. And this is why the money printing presses are on overtime right now to prevent that from happening. I didn't mean to interrupt you, but I we've got a lot of young people that are listening. So I just wanted to explain that to people. So go back to what you're saying. They can't handle a deflationary spiral. So therefore... Therefore, they're fighting this losing battle about trying to create create growth in in their GDP number or their CPI number. But effectively, what you've got is is massive deflation on the horizon through technology advancement. So you've got everything getting cheaper, energy production getting cheaper. You've got massive unemployment that's going to happen, and so they have to keep trying to drive growth through the one weapon that they have, and that's monetary debasement. So effectively just printing more dollars. So we're going to see all forms of this. We've started to see what is referred to broadly in, in traditional finance as helicopter money. And this is effectively just handing out checks to everybody. So they just start spending money. And this is the sort of, is, is you know, as that progresses, that's really the last step in massive monetary debasement. So corporates are thinking about this from their corporate treasury. They're like, well, if I'm getting hit on my corporate treasury by 25, 30%, as we saw with the debasement of the dollar last year, then we need to make sure that we're protecting against that. And that's what happened with MicroStrategy. And you're starting to see it with a lot of the macro funds as well. You've got Paul Tudor Jones that's moved in. Ray Dalio, I'm sure, will be one of the next. You've got a lot of macro managers that are starting to understand that the Bitcoin is potentially the very best hedge against this monetary deflation. So the past 12 months have been transformational, right? We both would agree on that. Um, numerous institutional players coming into the market. Um, what were, in your opinion, the seminal turning points? I think probably one of the biggest was Michael Saylor. Um, discovering Bitcoin and discovering how that could protect his balance sheet. I think he has done an enormously um, impressive job at educating others around what this means for, um, for their corporate balance sheet. He did a, a um, conference uh, a month and a half ago, I believe, um, where he had about 6,000 corporates attend. 
um, the CFOs, finance directors of these companies. And I think this has been really a, a turning point. You've got CEOs that control their company, like Michael uh, and Elon Musk in, in Tesla. They're the ones that can move first. But as I said to you earlier, you've got every corporate boardroom now trying to understand what is going on, why people are buying Bitcoin on their balance sheet and starting to move into that space and do it, doing it themselves. So I think over the next couple of courses, we're going to see more and more of this. And that's why I'm going to end up on your show sooner rather than later, because Bitcoin is going to be 175,000. So let me ask you the question that I'm often asked and I have a hard time answering. Uh, the Bitcoin going from a penny to $175,000, let's assume that we actually can get to that number uh, in 12 or 13 years, scares the bejesus out of people, right? Because we're trained, you were, I was, anybody that's in the investment management business is trained for, well, if anything is too good to be true, Richard, then therefore definitionally it's not true, run from it, don't run towards it. And yet you've looked at this, Michael Saylor has looked at this, I've looked at this, all three of us were trained that way, frankly. Yet you see it and you're willing to accept it, why? What was the intellectual chasm that you had to cross to get yourself intellectually around Bitcoin? It's a great question. I think probably the, the coming back to why do we think that way, we're trained to think about linear progression, right? And the point is that this advancement of technology that we're seeing in the current cycle, where we saw with the internet, as we did with Amazon, Apple, Facebook, these were companies that were massively enhanced by the network effect of the internet. Now you're starting to see that with money and the value proposition that a digital transferable money globally decentralized from government is able to bring the world. That is just a phenomenal thing. And as Michael Saylor often says, Bitcoin's already won the network race, right? It's a trillion dollar network now. You've got any competitor. I mean, what are competitors? Bitcoin Cash, Litecoin, Bitcoin SV. I mean, these are dying protocols. You look at Litecoin, no one's, no one's added development to that network for six months. It's a dead protocol as far as we assess it in terms of the way that we think about listing assets on our platform. So Bitcoin has destroyed anything that has come close to trying to compete with it. And it's won that network effect. If you look at um, Metcalfe's law and the way that network effects have this compounding effect, that's where our brain breaks when we're thinking about linear models, right? It's this exponential effect that technology can have. And Bitcoin is, is no exception. You know, it's, a, it's in a position where it could be a replacement for gold. It's better than gold in so many aspects, scarcity, portability, uh, divisibility, uh, fungibility, verifiability, all these things, it's beating gold. And it's still less than 10% of the entire market cap of gold. So where do we go? I think, uh, yeah, I think 175,000 is, uh, is, Fairly conservative, but so, so I want to I want to see if I can put it in my words, and you agree or disagree. 
What you're basically saying is we're trained to think linearly. Uh, Our minds are actually trained to think that way, too. That's part of our survival mechanism. But the world is actually, in some cases, moving exponentially. And you have the two things converging at the same time. This dilemma that the central banks are faced with. uh, So, therefore, they've uh, started printing the money, digitally, electronically producing the money. And at the same time, we need to standardize once again. So there's almost a need for a currency renewal, if you will, or a technological transformation of something that will allow us to trade goods and services that is more standardized and less manipulated by politicians or policymakers. And so this, these two things are happening at the same time, and that's why Bitcoin is scaling. And so in order for it to hit that standard, those coins have to be worth blank, whatever the blank is. You and I can figure out that number. And therefore, we'll start thinking about Satoshis, which are uh, units of Bitcoin as opposed to Bitcoin itself. So what, have I, what am I missing, Richard? You're not missing anything. You're exactly spot on. I think that just to sort of elaborate on one of the points you made, it there are 56 million, according to Morgan Stanley recent report, 56 million millionaires in the world, right? So 56 million millionaires all want to own one Bitcoin, they can't. They actually cannot own one. And by the way, you've got billionaires like Elon Musk and Michael Saylor just grabbing as much as they possibly can get before everyone realizes what this is. Right. And that's what's happening. Right. And, and yeah, I think that the, the thing, you asked me a question earlier, what got my mind round breaking that linear model? For me, it was really like one Bitcoin is one Bitcoin. And if I want, you know, my kids not to give me a hard time when they're 18 years old, they're, they're eight and 10 now and say, dad, why didn't you have any Bitcoin? You know, now it's the sort of the center of everything financial. And you know, you think, okay, well, I want to get one Bitcoin for each of the kids. And then you go, well, hang on, maybe I want 10. And then you're like, how many people could actually own 10? Like, you know, 2.1 million people in the world could actually own 10 Bitcoin. Suddenly it starts to really dawn on you how scarce this asset is. Okay, so the scarcity is also a very big issue. Let me ask you this, uh, in, in pursuant to this philosophical change in your mind, uh, where are we 10 years from now uh, when, quote unquote, to use your own words, Bitcoin is at the center of our financial experience? How do the traditional financial services in the crypto industry converge? Lay out the case. It's 2031. Where are we? So 2031, let's say Bitcoin is um, approaching $5 million per Bitcoin. As you rightly said. And by by the way, I'll already be through my second hair transplant by 2031. Okay. And I'm just saying that to interrupt Darcy from saying it, Byworth. Okay. Keep going, Byworth. Yeah. So I think what you're going to have is you're going to have a very large value uh, of Bitcoin as a single Bitcoin. And I think you you highlighted it just then. Bitcoin divides to eight decimal places. The unit, the final unit is a Satoshi. And we will start to think in Satoshis. I think $1 today is 9,000 Satoshis. And as the price goes higher and higher, you'll probably end up with a situation where 
one Satoshi is one US dollar. Um, and that will end up being the way that we think about this in terms of scaling. So um, yeah, I, I think that's probably the answer. So the traditional finance, how do they reconcile with this? How does a old school bank get their arms around this? Um, so the way that we're seeing banks move into the space at the moment is the, is the usual way. They need to understand how they avoid that reputational risk. First major reputational risk is a bank moving into this space and getting hacked, right? So they've got to make sure they don't get hacked. So the biggest thing that they have to focus on is custody. How do we deal with custody? How do we deal with custody in a safe and secure way? So many of the conversations that we have with banks are about them getting to the point of understanding how to deal with it, how to either build their own solution, use ours, or use a white label version of our solution. I think I mentioned earlier that our solution has been built by ex-specialists, um, security specialists from the, the Ministry of Defense in the United Kingdom. His CTO is effectively um, ex-infrastructure banking head from, from UBS. And so what they've managed to do is build a very institutionally focused risk policy engine around the way that they deal with custody. And that's the way the banks are getting into it first. So once they understand how to store it, then they can start to offer it to their clients. And then once they start to offer it to their clients, then it's really just a, a mindset shift around how does blockchain start to really disrupt capital markets? So it's, you know, we're talking about just purely Bitcoin. Bitcoin is a particular asset, right? Then you're starting to move into the smart protocol world um, and how we're going to see capital markets disrupted. And I think that is probably going to be where the banks really weighed in. It's about understanding the way to manage these assets and then actually change the way that capital markets, are you know, transactions are transmitted using blockchain networks. Okay, it's well said. I've got two last questions that we have to turn it over to the millennial, okay, who's gonna ask millennial-like questions. What is next for Diginex, short-term and long-term? So in the very short term, we've got a lot of derivative product rollout. That for us is our skill set. We all came from derivative banking. Um, but what that leads into is a broader offering on a platform. So effectively allowing people to manage their risk around derivatives. When you think back to what we've been discussing as Bitcoin, you're never going to want to sell your Bitcoin. You're going to want to use your Bitcoin as your core collateral base and trade derivatives around that. Sell calls, buy, uh, sell puts, do all of that. Manage your finances around this core collateral base. So once you have that derivative set, it's going to be like your private bank for digital assets. So you can buy structured products, you can invest in funds that are tokenized, and you can use that collateral base without actually ever selling any of your Bitcoin. And that's good. that's for us is the long-term goal, is that you have that prime services stroke private bank type function for institutions on the prime side, individuals on the private bank side. What's the symbol for Diginex so that our viewers can uh, look you guys up and potentially invest? Yeah, so we, as you say, we listed on NASDAQ, our ticker is EQOS um, uh, under the name Diginex. So Equos is, is, is the name of our exchange. So EQOS was the ticker symbol, is okay. the ticker. Well, well, listen, Richard, congratulations. I'm going to turn it over to John Darcy. 
who's sitting there in that very beautiful room, John Dorsey, the richest person at Skybridge, possibly the richest person in the world. Go ahead. You, it's your floor. Ignore him, Richard. But uh, in terms of the regulatory environment, so you're sitting there in Hong Kong. What's the regulatory environment uh, in Asia and how do you view the global regulatory environment outlook over the next five years or so? Is it an inevitability that that these countries approve it for full use or do you think there's going to be some level of crackdown, whether it be in India China, I know, has, has various rules around Bitcoin. The U.S. government, Janet Yellen, our Treasury Secretary, has made some critical comments about it. What do you see as the regulatory outlook? I think the regulatory outlook for the U.S. is quite positive. You look at people like Gary Glenzer sitting at the top of the SEC. I mean, he's very pro, pro the technology, and I think he understands what it is. Yellen's, you know, I mean, probably not um, thought entirely about the asset, but probably understands the risk it might be. As Dan Held said, she basically took every piece of FUD that you could ever find on the internet and rolled it up into one and delivered it in her congressional testimony. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, it's quite rich. The Fed saying that uh, Bitcoin is is an environmental disaster. When you think about what the, you know, when you keep pushing that button on printing dollars, or a manipulated asset, you know. They say, "Oh, there's manipulation in the uh, in the Bitcoin market," and that's rich to obviously Bitcoiners. Exactly, very rich. But you know, I mean, I, I think energy consumption, GDP, everything you want to point out. I mean, everything around the dollar is is a worst example of what of of, of the environmental issues around Bitcoin. Um, back to your regulatory question around Asia. I mean, if you look at the two key jurisdictions. Um, for financial services, it's it's obviously Hong Kong and Singapore. Um, both those jurisdictions are very focused on trying to understand what is the best way to regulate this asset class. Uh, Singapore actually moved with a very proactive and innovative approach, uh, whereas uh, Hong Kong were a little bit more, while they moved first with providing a regulatory framework, they actually were a bit more conservative. Um, that said, I think that the SFC here in Hong Kong is, is very pro the asset class. Um, they're trying to understand how they can uh, continue to support the industry. I mean, Hong Kong is probably the, the largest crypto hub in the world um, in terms of talent in this space. It's you know, one of the reasons that we continue to hire here, even though we're based in Singapore. Um, Japan has gone down a road of uh, being the very first regulator to to regulate the space, but now has gone extremely conservative um, and really shutting the doors on on foreigners coming in and providing services. So to your question, I think every country is taking a slightly different approach and the people that are looking at banning it, well, you know, they're, they're concerned about capital controls for obvious reasons. Bitcoin and other digital assets, cryptocurrencies are a risk to a country that's trying to implement capital controls. So uh, they don't want their citizens using it and moving money around very easily. Right. Well, well, China obviously has, I think it's between 50 and 60 percent of the <clears throat> global mining operations for Bitcoin. Uh but at the same time have restrictions on the use because of capital controls, like you mentioned. They're also developing a digital yuan. What do you think the significance of them developing that central bank digital currency? Do you think down the road when there's not the maybe uh, stringent need for capital controls that 
they'll evolve their regulation and, you know, in keeping with the fact that they run 60% of the world's mining operations and are aggressively pursuing a central bank digital currency, do you think uh, they'll fully adopt and integrate digital currencies and, and decentralized finance? Look, um, you know, China is is very focused on control and central bank digital currency is all about control. I mean, they were the first country to issue a central bank digital currency. It's actually already issued the digital yuan. Um, and so, you know, what I see the, the play for China is actually more about creating uh, a currency that can be a competitor to the dollar. And so what you'll see with that digital currency for China is, is an internationalization of their currency, um, much more so. And they want to move that into, you know, places like Russia, Iran, and, uh, and start to provide support for, for those regimes based on, you know, obviously their currency um, profile. So I think by being the first mover into central bank digital currencies, they they've seen the opportunity and they want to dominate and they're moving very fast. So you, know, you expect these railings that central bank di digital currencies are built on to replace the SWIFT system? Do you expect the United States to have to respond by building its own, uh, you know, digitized dollar? Yeah, I think that we will see that from the Fed. Um, I think that, you know, because they're in such a position of strength, they don't have to move quite as fast. They can observe what everybody else is doing and then make their own move. And obviously that will be very quickly adopted. Um, so I think the Fed's in a pretty strong position to be able to defend. I mean, the one problem that you've got is that China doesn't have to deal with a democratic process and getting things, things through a Senate. They just get things done. Really? And, and so it's a, it's a, you know, when you're looking at the speed of technology that we touched on earlier, um, you know, when you're in a race like that, this is quite an advantage in that race. Yeah, you know, not not to turn this into a political conversation, but there are advantages and disadvantages of both systems in terms of uh, whether it be drug development or uh, experimentation with digital currencies, for sure. I want to talk about, you mentioned Michael Saylor as being a, a very important person and his adoption of Bitcoin being an important turning point. In my opinion, what we've seen from insurance companies in the United States is equally, if not more important, especially if you think of regulatory risk as the biggest threat to uh, the inevitability of Bitcoin, you know, the idea that the United States could ban it or tax it in an onerous way. So you have Mass Mutual several months ago announced that they invested $100 million into Bitcoin via NYDIG. NYDIG, also a great partner of ours that we think is a fantastic organization, they announced this week, a $200 million investment into the GP from the likes of Soros, Bessemer, Morgan Stanley, the largest wealth management unit in the US, as well as New York Life. And New York Life also put their chairman and CEO on the board of NYDIG. So you, you clearly have several insurance companies that have significant exposure to Bitcoin. What do you think that means for the movement and, and sort of the acceleration of this adoption curve that you talked about? I think it's across the board. I think it's pensions. I think it's hedge funds. It's macro firms. It's you know, as you say, it's insurers. You know, Mass Mutual is the first big insurer that we've seen move into the space, um, but it's not going to be the last for sure. I mean, all of these people are sitting on huge, um, huge amounts of capital and, and need to put it best to work. And it's all the same trade, right? It's, it's against the devaluation of the dollar. 
So I think, um, yeah, look, Mass Mutual's move, Guggenheim's move, Paul Tudor Jones' move, Michael Saylor's move, all of these were effectively leading their part of the industry. And I think, um, I think, yeah, this is, is just going to continue. Those are the first movers. When you think about that in the context of the supply side crisis that we are already in, then you see how we very quickly move to 175,000. Right. I want to talk about the energy piece because we think that you're going to continue to see a lot of comments around ESG, <clears throat> excuse me, around ESG energy usage and all the issues around that, that, you know, Bitcoin poses a risk to the climate. You have the Paris Climate Accord. You have an administration in the United States that's more committed to those standards. And uh, there was a Norwegian billionaire. I'm going to butcher his name, but it's Kel Inga Roca. You might do a better job as an a international citizen, but he announced that his company, which is the third largest energy producer, in addition to being a conglomerate in Norway, is investing into Bitcoin and also going to put their entire corporate treasury, uh, liquid investable assets into Bitcoin. But he talked a lot about in his shareholder letter, which was published a couple of days ago, that was fantastic, about how Bitcoin can almost act as a battery that equalizes demand on some of these energy platforms. Could you talk more about uh, the opportunity that actually Bitcoin creates from an energy perspective and why those concerns around climate change uh, are actually misplaced? I think that what Bitcoin does, and it's really interesting, that analogy, I hadn't read that shareholder letter, but it's a very, very good analogy because what we experienced, we were a miner ourselves. What we experienced was that you always want to be finding the cheapest energy. Effectively, what Bitcoin miners are doing is just tracking the cheapest possible energy. And the cheapest possible energy is generally orphaned energy. So it'll be, you know, someone's built a hydroelectric power plant to, to support a forestry uh, industry in northern Sweden. That was a perfect example of, of, of where we mined um, back three years ago. That was orphaned energy because the forestry uh, industry had moved out. Sustainability of the forestry had, had, had limited the amount of deforestation that they could do. And so you'd been left with this hydroelectric power plant that had been built that wasn't being used. And so what we did with, with mining was we effectively took that energy and we monetized it into that battery. I love that. Into that battery that is Bitcoin and then transferred that energy into someone that was prepared to pay for it. And so I think, you know, we, I looked at it often as this is a way of keeping the network that, um, that uh, subsidization across particularly the EU has done to, to really grow clean energy. If you think about hydroelectric power, you think about nuclear, all of this has been very heavily subsidized by the European Union. Another example was when we were mining in uh, Gondo, which is the eastern part of Switzerland. Literally a kilometer down the road we, in Italy, there was a uh, hydroelectric power station that was going to be shutting because it didn't, it wasn't close enough to the grid. It wasn't powering enough. It was, it was just not profitable. And so they were going to shut down. So we ran an optic fiber cable down to that hydroelectric power station, used the energy, monetized it, kept the power station open and effectively kept that network in place until we get to a point where efficiency or population growth has got to a point where you can transfer that energy or use it in a national grid more effectively. So I always think about it as, as being the sort of the placeholder to keep the network together 
That's why I like his analogy about the battery. I think it's a perfect analogy. Yeah, I mean, that, that shareholder letter, we think it's one of the most important, <clears throat> excuse me again, pieces that's been written on Bitcoin this year. You know, it was, uh, it was spoken in very plain English. It was a very sober assessment of where we are in Bitcoin and why he's decided. He basically talked about how he missed out on several trends, including the advent of the internet and some things that took place in the energy sector. And he says, this is the next big idea. And I'm not going to miss out. It was it was a great piece of research. It's available on the company website for the entity that he launched uh, called CTSEETEE.io. So anybody who's watching this, I would definitely read that shareholder letter. Um, one of the best pieces we think that's been written on Bitcoin. But yeah, the, the energy piece, I think, is fascinating because as we've spoken to several people on Salt Talks about this issue, it almost incentivizes the development of cheap clean energy uh, because it it equalizes demand on the grid. And so, you know, in some ways, Bitcoin will have the opposite effect that, that some of these uh, misinformed people have as it relates to carbon emissions. You know, Inner Mongolia, as an example, just banned Bitcoin mining using coal, you know, China being very conscious of its uh, contribution to greenhouse emissions. So a lot of interesting stuff happening in the space and, and rapid progress. But We'll leave it there. I don't want to take away all of our material for but, your appearance but, but in six be, months. Be, when before before Richard goes, a yeah. quick question about China. Yeah. Obviously, they they're banning Bitcoin. What's your opinion there? Before we go, and then John can wrap it up. Uh, look, China bans Bitcoin every six to eighteen months. Um, so you know, it, as we always say about China, don't don't watch what they say. Watch what they do. Um, and the fact that you've still got such a high proportion of miners sitting in China, not being shut down, the flow's still coming. Um, you know, they they do want to have uh, input on this network. Now, um, I think that China is probably going to start being one of the central banks or the PBOC is going to be one of the central banks to actually start buying Bitcoin on their balance sheet. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if they've already done it and they're just not disclosing it. Okay, well, well said. I wanted to get that in there. I, that was my inkling, but and my inclination, but I wanted to get it confirmed by you, Richard. Go ahead, young Darcy. We'll wrap it up there. I, I don't want to again take all of our material for Richard's return appearance in six, twelve months when uh, so Richard, God we have willing. A guarantee on that now, though. We're 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 in the bank. We have a handshake deal. The bitcoins are at one hundred and seventy-five thousand, and you're our guest on Salt Talks. Okay. Done. Okay. If, if it doesn't make it to 175,000 in a year, you have to give me all your Bitcoins. How's that? <laughs> no, they won't be worth that much. Even six months. No worries. All right. All right, Richard. Well, thank you for joining us. Uh, hopefully we'll get over to Asia here when things clear up fully on, on uh, COVID. We, we did our SALT conference in Abu Dhabi in 2019. We've done it in Singapore twice. So whether we go back to Singapore or we bring it to Hong Kong, we'd love to have uh, your participation, of course. That'll be fantastic. I look forward to it. Or maybe All even right. take, I'll say. There you go. And you'll be able to buy your, your ticket in Bitcoin. So no worries. Uh, but thank you, everybody, also for tuning into today's talk with Richard Byworth of Diginex, a leading uh, digital asset exchange. Just a reminder, if you missed any part of this talk or any of our previous talks, you can access our entire archive at salt.org backslash talks and on our YouTube channel, which is called Salt Tube. We're also on Twitter at Salt Conference is where we're most active. We're also on LinkedIn, Instagram, and Facebook. And please spread the word about these Salt Talks for your friends. We love growing our community uh, here on Salt Talks. But on behalf of Anthony and the entire Salt team, this is John Darcy signing off for today. We hope to see you back here soon.